Hello and welcome to another episode of the World War Two podcast. A while back, I got an email from a guy called David Taylor asking if I'd ever considered looking at the cork industry in World War Two. I can hear you thinking, like I did at the time, uh, sounds a bit dull. Well, the more I looked into it, the more I got enthused by the story of cork. It was a wonder product during the early 20th century, used in all manner of things. Almost anything that needed a seal, such as a gasket, used cork. So it was crucial to the auto industry, aviation and munitions. The American government defined it as a strategic industry, along with coal and steel. What makes the story more interesting is that the majority of it came from neutral Portugal and Spain. I hope I've laid out my case for why it is such a fascinating story. So I'm joined by David Taylor, who is author of Cork Wars, which tells the stories of some of those involved in the cork business during World War Two and Crown Cork and Seal one of the largest companies producing cork products during the war. But before we get to cork, a quick reminder that this podcast is made possible by listeners like yourself becoming patrons of the show, contributing a dollar or so each month, which helps me find the time to put it all together. And there is just me. I have no team of researchers, editors or internet gurus. I do the lot. So if you enjoy the podcast and would like to know more about becoming a patron, head over to patreon.com slash www2podcast or go to the website www2podcast.com and click on donate. And I thank those who already support the show. So, David, thanks for joining me. Um, I don't think people will have put much thought into this, but Cork... A wonder product at the start of the 20th century. Um, why? I wonder if you could tell us why. Yeah, right around the start of the 20th century, it becomes a wonder product in uh, manufacturing and industry because of its ability to flex, basically. The, 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 it, the, the air in its cells uh, allow it to both shrink and then resume its original shape in a, a very unusual property uh, for a, a product. And it was when they kind of a, a chance discovery that when you ground it up and subjected it to heat, you could make it into shape it into other shapes that would be useful for industry so that you could use it to seal things. So by the 20th century, it was really, I mean, by the mid 20th century, it was really um, uh, a key part of, um, manufacturing, whether it was um, engine gaskets or sealing uh, windshields and glazings uh, for that, or you know, creating um, bomb parts, anything that you needed to seal and, and also insulate. It was used uh, sort of the particulate uh, kind of ground up cork. It was put together in a sort of a sealant um, in a way that you could uh, use it as uh, insulation also. So it's, it, 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 it's funny because it's a product that I just assumed that had always been there i hadn't quite realized it's sort of been discovered or well it, rediscovered or <laughs> yeah you're right i mean it had always been uh, you know it had been used for centuries going back to the roman empire for for you know buoys and for um uh, for capping uh, vases but also always it was uh, used kind of the original cork uh layer the bark of the cork oak tree it wasn't until the 1890s that they 
ground it up in, into this new sort of form for industrial use. So that was kind of the point where it really took off. So we're going to be looking at Crown Cork and Sale, and that's run by the uh, McManus family. And this this is an enormous business. So tell, tell us about the business. Crown Cork and Seal uh, started in the 1890s as a, just a bottle capping innovation to sort of ma- using cork in the, the top of the uh, bottle caps to make a, a new, a better seal. And that took off. Uh, it was based in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, it was a, a growth industry for decades as the timing was perfect because it uh, came about at the same time that carbonated sodas and broader distribution of of beer and and other things that could be bottled. Uh, So the bottling business needed this kind of a a new product for making uh, things keep better and and work better. So in the first decades of the 20th century, um, Crown Cork and Seal was a, a leader in that. Charles McManus was an inventor himself. He liked to tinker with things, so he tried more types of containers and ways to use cork industrially so that by the 30s um, when the the depression came and he was, his business was actually still expanding it is an enormous I, I, I failed to write down the figure but it's an enormous business would they have half the met, met, bottle tops in the usa or something ridiculous actually yes the the uh, well the uh, crown and it's uh, another industry leader armstrong cork were leading in the imports of cork so that yeah by the start of the war american imports of cork were about half the world's production it's uh it was this little known and even most americans didn't realize how much i think that cork was this um vital product for their daily lives it was they would see it and you know it was popular becoming popular for flooring and in in cars and things but uh, it wasn't until Actually, this fire in 1940 brought government attention to it, and then the government published like an article about, uh, oh, cork is this uh, remarkable material, and and we really depend on it for, both for our economy but also for our defense use. If we, if we look at that, there's a fire in the, is it the Crown Cork Storage Yard, and when we say storage yard, it, it sounded me like it, I don't know how to describe it. it it's enormous, isn't it? It's, it's a- yes, it's a it's a nine acre uh, storage yard for cork bales so it was right near the port so you they would import container ships full of cork uh, from portugal and spain initially and uh, um, just directly put the cork into this nine acre uh, cork yard as they called it and it rose up you know it would be 50 60 feet high this was this product that was still harvested in a very traditional way and so it was you know, you would get a year's worth of the harvest at the end of the harvest season. And, and there's there's talk of it being uh, sabotage. I mean, it, it, I'm not sure if it's all a bit uh, fifth column, but you know, could there be any truth in the Germans trying to nobble the American cork, cork industry at the uh, with this September 1940? So you know, France has fallen. Was there any potential truth in, in 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 German industrial sabotage against the American cork industry? There actually was. It was a legitimate fear. Um, the FBI already by then, by the fall of 1940, had been tracking um, several Nazi uh, sabotage rings, including one in particular based in uh, Long Island, New York, that they later uh, arrested months after the the Crown Cork fire, they arrested a Nazi ring and found that they did have plans for disrupting either by bombing or fire infrastructure 
facilities uh, on the East Coast to kind of scare uh, and just more out of fear than actually bringing down um, American infrastructure, but creating public fears of entering the war. So they found plans for um, you know, bombing el- electric power stations and uh, train l- lines uh, and some factories as well. So it was a legitimate fear. I, I was thinking about the, the, um, the threat to supply. If you take out a, su- a supply dump, you're reliant upon all your cock coming from so is it Spain, Portugal, and is it, is it North Africa? Are they the main cock growing That's right. areas? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, after the outbreak of war and the fall of France, uh, and there's obviously uh, at this point as well, there's also war in North Africa. Uh, War must have threatened cork supply. I mean, how much of a problem is that for the U.S.? It was actually a big problem because, as you say, you know, North Africa at that point was held by the Axis powers, and um, so the the Iberian Peninsula was uh, isolated. Uh, it was so Portugal and Spain were feeling the the heat from Hitler, and and so they were they were staying neutral uh, and. Uh, it looked like there was great potential for both countries to come under the uh, the Axis um, umbrella, and 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 so that all cork would be among other things, uh, all trade from Portugal and Spain uh, and North Africa would be cut off, and and American industry really did depend on that. Is it such an important commodity? And I guess I was say, is it a strategic commodity? Is that actually a, an official term? Did they term things strategic commodities? They did. They um, it was a strategic commodity, and, and once it was labeled that way, particularly after the after the uh, 1940 fire, that determined that most uses of cor- most imported cork would be dedicated to uh, defense purposes, and so companies had limited uh, um, power to what they could do for commercial purposes, and also it, it meant that uh, the media couldn't. Uh, there was censorship of uh, you couldn't quote stats about uh, how much cork was imported or 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 about facilities so um, it had other implications too presumably things like steel coal oil are also strategic products so cork is being wrapped with those uh coal steel type products that you would normally associate as being with strategic products uh through war that's right. Yeah, I think because people would think of it mainly as like bottle caps or uh, loose things, they, they would, I think even then, I think it would strike people as surprising that <laughs> they pop open a, a soda and think this is uh, uses a, a strategic product. So, you know, from from the American cork industry's point of view, you know, how much of a threat was the war in Europe, or indeed, I mean, I guess in 1940, could it be seen as an opportunity? Well, in some ways. Uh, yeah, McManus at uh, Crown Cork and Seal did see the German blockade of the Atlantic as a threat to the, the supply lines, and, and others in the industry did too. Um, smaller companies saw the, the price of their raw materials go up, and, and many you know, had to find other other means of business. McManus for Crown Cork and Seal found defense contracts as a way to fill in the what they couldn't do uh, commercially, uh, but also he did see a way to well maybe there's a a way to grow cork domestically as a way to sort of get uh, away from uh, foreign supplies so he worked with his corporate chemist and and uh, and botanists and see well tra- mapped out um, possible climate zones where cork oaks could grow in the US 
and uh, set off a whole campaign to get people to, to grow cork oak trees. The funny thing about cork is it's a bit like tea, isn't it? It doesn't really grow anywhere. Attempts had been made previously to export cork plants to the US and failed. Yeah, you're right. Uh, cork acorns were so the viability didn't last that long so thomas jefferson going back in the 1700s was fascinated by cork and how it was used in in capping wine casks and things so he tried he wanted to grow it at his home in, in monticello but the atlantic passage at that point was took too long so the cork acorns couldn't couldn't survive that that passage it wasn't until the, like the mid 1800s when you had faster ships that uh, you could actually try to grow cork in um, North America and have some success. So when they eventually they they did in the mid to late 1800s uh, in California, they were found climate was good and and uh, and and some people started planting cork oak trees with the idea that they could uh, produce cork and as a, a wine industry started, they maybe they could adapt it that way but but in 1940 this this wasn't a commercial entity or viable enough to fill in the uh gaps with the uh trade from europe that's right yeah the, there were for cork growing cork plantations in the u.s were just non non-existent really in at 1940 and people didn't know how to strip the trees by that point even though some plants you know some of the trees had been planted in the 1800s nobody really knew uh it wasn't a, a uh, tradition or, or um, culture or that had infrastructure or knowledge um, in North America at that point. It's amazing. So they go around planting 7,500 acorns a year. I mean, it's the most, which presumably, I mean, I don't know how quick cork grows, but I can't imagine it's ready for uh, harvesting by 1945. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that was one of the first things that struck me in reading uh, articles about this, you know, a big promotion of you had state governors uh, urging uh, 4-H groups and and planting uh, trees uh, very ceremonially uh, on state capital grounds, saying we can grow this for patriotism, patriotic reasons, and uh, we can um, be uh, make America self-sufficient in cork. But it's a long-term investment. It, the trees have to grow like 20 years before you can, you know, get a first harvest of of cork. Even then, they probably realized the war would not last that long, but uh, but it was a, an opportunity. So, so for for the Europeans, for the Portuguese and the Spanish, I mean, what does what does war mean for them when they're? I presume everybody's clamoring for their goods. I mean, there must also be a thing, you know, if you're dealing with certainly Spain, but it, you know, the Iberian Peninsula has already had to go through the Spanish Civil War, which must have disrupted trade. So, I mean, I don't know if that helped. I did wonder if, if, if the Spanish Civil War helped them work in, uh, in adverse situations because the Spanish Civil War finishes and you get the Second World War, which is another ad very adverse situation, presumably, before neutral countries to be trading it, it, it. That's a good question. I, yeah, the Spanish Civil War, I think, did hurt the uh, – it disrupted life and industry in Spain and Portugal – remained uh, and became even stronger as a as a cork exporter um but then as you get into the second world war both countries are, are selling to both sides of the war so you have uh, in the same article you have articles about the, the nazis scooping up uh, spanish harvests of cork in 1939 1940 uh, paying a premium and so i mean spanish exporters are getting some benefit from that and in Portugal, uh, companies are 
carefully dealing with both sides also, sometimes under different names they're exporting to one side and uh, and using a different owner's name to export to to Hitler. It's it's wonderfully complicated. But then you get the the Portuguese trade increased to Germany from 2% to 25%. I mean, the, the the trees in Portugal must have been stripped bare by the end of 1945. I mean, it strikes me as demand must have been uh, through the roof. The demand was high, but because it was state controlled, because uh, Salazar kept such an iron uh, control on industry and uh, they had several foresters in charge who had uh, long term visions for sustainable forestry. You know, it didn't cut into uh, the the core of their supply so they were um they were sen- selling to both sides and they had a huge demand but uh, they were managing it what they worried about was the actually uh the it seemed like the portuguese cork industry was concerned that by american cork growing efforts might replace them ultimately or just the disruption of the war with the cross atlantic trade would disrupt their um, exports that way. How is business con- you know, conducted? Does, does it literally go to the highest bidder, or, or is it some sort of? You know, it's, it's very difficult for these neutral countries to to be uh, neutral, uh, and a lot of them are neutral in different ways depending on how how the war's going. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> d- d- exactly. Yeah, Portugal, and then there's the, the secret police in Portugal, or uh, their activity in arrests was affected by the way the the war was going. So when when Germany was doing better, the Portuguese secret police would crack down harder, both on uh, on refugees uh, as well as on uh, anti- anybody selling to the Allies. And then when um, the Allies were doing better, they would back off and, and uh, sort of navigate it that way. So, so if we return to uh, Crown Cork, I mean, it has, it has uh, various... And it's a big company. I mean, it's one of those big companies you've never heard of. It has... Operations throughout Europe, including Britain, Portugal, Spain, uh, they're in the Netherlands, presumably they're in other places in Europe. You know, how does the war uh, directly uh, affect them? Presumably they're left untouched in 1940 being a new, with America, America being neutral. Yeah, although uh, so... In 1940, when France fell, uh, the uh, offices, the Crown Cork offices in in Belgium and, and Netherlands closed. Uh, they were just no longer able to do business internationally, and they uh, the restrictions are too much. So they their staffs were fleeing as well. So the Crown Cork uh, manager in in Portugal ends up helping them and others get from the, the French Spanish border across Spain and into to Portugal to to a sort of safe haven. Um, but yeah, the, it, it affected uh, the business quite a bit. As Charles McManus Jr. told me, he said, well, the only uh, access they still had during the war, it was kind of a bit of luck to have their um, export facility from Portugal still open uh, and still going. That was the, the, the thread that they held on to. Well, Charles McManus Jr. had left London in, what, 39 because of the was it the bombing or was it the fact that his factory had disappeared? Uh, no, it was, the, it was the bombing, actually. The the factory had disappeared uh, kind of as a preventive measure. <laughs> the, the manager had relocated it to, to protect it from uh, from the bombing. And <laughs> the problem was it was uh, then inoperable until they could put things back into place. What, what, what happened to my factory? Uh, yeah. um, Where did everything go? Yeah. <laughs> probably panicking over where all the bits of machinery had disappeared to and just you know, spread across the country in, in various crates. 
Now, it's the international nature of Crown Cork that brings it to the attention of the uh, OSS, the American Office of Strategic Services. Presumably, for a start, they're monitoring Cork before before we get to planting agents and things they must have been it must have been a vital barometer that's right yes uh, uh, the fbi and oss were both monitoring uh trade uh, very closely particularly in the uh, early 1942-1943 and particularly from the, these neutral countries to see uh, what was coming in what was coming out because they had so few sources of information inside those countries to um that, that knew the economic barriers and, and the economic uh, flows were so important. Tungsten, which was then called Wolfram, was another important commercially traded item from uh, Spain and Portugal. And it was also key to the defense industry for, for hardening wartime materiel and, and, uh, and other equipment. So cork and, and tungsten trade numbers were right in front and center of, of the OSS uh, um, director. The, the OSS it becomes interesting in, in, in Crown Cock and it sees it as an opportunity to place agents in, is it the whole of the Iberian Peninsula? How, how do they go about doing that? I mean, do they insert their people into Crown Court, Cork or do they... Uh, train Crown at Cork uh, employees, James Bond style. They actually look at both of those options. Uh, the OSS approaches Crown Cork in the, their international management in New York, and they sit down and say, the OSS uh, has limited opportunities with the official spies. Our own staff can't, don't have the latitude to travel to key points in the ports and warehouses and the cork growing areas. So, um, but companies that have a natural reason to be there, like Crown Cork or like Armstrong Cork, are great opportunities for undercover work. And so, you know, they ask, can can we either draw on some of your staff and, and pay them to be un- undercover for us, or can we insert some of our candidates for jobs that you might need and so they have that conversation and both for both spain and portugal and they end up um deciding that well one of the uh the crown cork uh, managers in portugal and spain is is originally catalan he's you know fluent he knows the business he's savvy um so he's a good prospect to be an undercover undercover agent at the same time they also um recruit from places like uh, armstrong cork so you have another uh, a young guy who's uh, he had studied in Europe, so he could do well in Europe in the Spanish context. And uh, they recruited and trained him as uh, direct OSS staff, uh, and and put him in an area that was rife with uh, with Gestapo activity. Did they train them at all, or did they just sort of send them in to Portugal and Spain with a list of things to look out for? I mean, is it how close is that relationship between the OSS and and these uh, these employees of Crown Cork? Of Crown Cork, it seemed like they mainly gave them a list of uh, of what they needed and 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 sent them in with that. I, I, it's not clear how much training they got. The ones from the Cork industry that they recruited for direct uh, kind of OSS officer positions, they did give more um, stateside training before sending them into the situation. And I think that was, it depended 
maybe partly on how sensitive the areas where they were going in were. Lisbon, Lisbon is famously a hot, you know, hotbed of intrigue, isn't it? Where you, where these men presumably would be working from. I mean, do they have any other um, relationships, say, with their British counterparts? Because you know, I made a note that there's, there's Kim Philby, Graham Greene, Ian Fleming are all sort of at some point in in Lisbon. Are, you know, are they are they brushing sh- shoulders with these? Uh, well, certainly post-war luminaries who were uh, working for the British at the time. Yes, there, were, there was a fascinating scene there. Yeah, as you say, yeah, Graham Greene and, and uh, Kim Philby, they cultivated some of the same uh, uh, informants. There was uh, just a lot of activity. And you would find agents dead in the, uh, in the Lisbon Harbour one side and, and open killings in, a, in a, the Hotel Avenida another day. So it was, it was dangerous work. Um, but particularly for the staff, you know, for the the career spies were up to all kinds of things. So, you know, how did it's uh, how did these two guys, is, is it Massa and, and, and Ginsburg, fit in with the the OSS hierarchy? I mean, are they literally just being told, can we can you find out who so-and-so is buying his cork from? Or are they trundling around picking up other bits of information? As far as I can learn from their families and from the document it was they were given lists of, of like what they could get from who was who was dealing to which side and how were they exporting and and uh, how were um, potentially black market activities uh, unfolding because if they could understand and contain the black markets and the shipments going to uh, to Germany then um, they could cut off another part of uh, the German war machine uh, presumably all these buyers there must be large numbers of them hiding who they're buying for so nobody's quite sure even for the Portuguese who's purchasing <laughs> it just disappears absolutely yeah it was uh, and then the Portuguese border with Spain too was there was a wide zone of uh, kind of uh, illegal activity it was a very porous border for certain things like black markets because uh, you got uh, border guards who are not getting paid much, and uh, it's just uh, you can shift things so that uh, exports can go through without <laughs> without the right documentation. Presumably, there's, there's there's agents working for German versions of Crown Cork doing this counter counter counting uh, cork shipments and things as well. Whoever the German, whoever whatever is the German version of Crown Cork, I was trying to think of a witty German name, and I can't off the top of my head. <laughs> Uh, there were um, and some of the uh, the cables that came from Lisbon to uh, to Washington documented the German um, importing firm that was yeah basically the counterpart to Crown Court and uh, how they were shipping in as much as they could buying up from from the Portuguese. I'm guessing cork is no longer a strategic product. It's been usurped by uh, plastics. No doubt help from the technology developed during the war. Is that? You know, did Crown Cork see that coming? No, they didn't really see it coming. They thought that uh, – I talked to um, actually a <laughs> former U.S. Treasury Secretary, Michael Blumenthal, who worked for Crown Cork in the 50s. And uh, even then, he, he, he saw it, the shift coming to plastic. And he said – I asked his manager, uh, Ginsburg, of, like, you know, what uh, – you know, isn't this – this shift is – aren't we vulnerable to this uh, – you know, Cheaper, uh, more flexible material, plastic, and then. But uh, Ginsburg and others were saying no. The, it has to do with the taste of the, the beverage. It's not. You know, they'll never shift to, to plastics, and so they were caught off guard. I, d- I did wonder if actually, 
you know, if you're going to buy shares, it might be something that might 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 be a resurgence as the as as, as uh, we're increasingly moving away from plastic. Well, that's right. The cork um, industry about 20 years ago saw that well, they were getting hit hard by plastic, and there was even a kind of a ceremonial funeral of four. Cork uh, on Wall Street. They carried a casket, uh, a coffin of uh, representing the cork industry. But since then, they've they've invested more in, in uh, R and D and and uh, improved the quality of the product. And and there's, as you say, there's a lot of public concern to get more um, sustainable than than all this these huge mountains of plastic that are just don't break down. So uh, replacing it with something more organic, more more green and eco-friendly, uh, cork is, is having another another day. Well, what happened to all those cork trees that were planted? Surely America must be uh, you know, potentially <laughs> awash with cork with, you know, whatever it'll be, you know, 30 or 40,000 cork trees planted during the war. They, and they're probably there. People don't even know. I actually did find some growing in, in California still from that time um and they do know them you know they're labeled there they're recognized there they're not being harvested but they're uh, because they're still not the kind of the infrastructure around the industry but people also in the, in, in the american south some of the older ones who remember actually planting the cork trees during then know that they're still there and and they told me they're still alive and growing but uh, a lot of people don't know what they look like or even what they might be they're just that there to be harvest so um you know how how does this sort of wartime story to track down it is such an obtuse story you know how did you stumble upon it how 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 hard is it to track with it to track down it is an obtuse story i think because sort of this collective forgetting of this product because of plastics is is always seems like it's it's always been with us so uh uh, i think uh, the the fact that there was the secrecy of the oss activity in general and not declassified until uh, a decade ago, uh, and the fact that it was a material that nobody now would suspect of being a national <laughs> security uh, item. I came across an article. It was kind of by chance. I was really working on another project, another a book about the 1930s and going into the early 40s about uh, um, writers during that time. I came across an article about this tree-growing campaign for patriotic uh, uses to grow cork to to make uh, America self-sufficient. It struck me as an odd uh, campaign, so I looked into it and then started talking with people, um, and that's when I came across um, Charles McManus Jr., and he told me how that fire uh, was such a you know, milestone event. It really triggered many things that came after that into the into that campaign and how it you know affected their lives from there. So I knew at that point that was an interesting story. Oh, it's a, and it is such an interesting story. It is such an interesting story. It's completely, completely, slightly you know, left left field. It's wonderful. You know, I find it fascinating. Even after the war, you know, they start tracking Russian sales of cork. I mean, I, I, there, there's a whole new book there because you know these George Le Carre books. You can't imagine them talking about <laughs> cork. <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's right. yeah. Going into uh, the uh, into the Cold War, it becomes another issue. Where yeah, Stalin has uh, spent decades and, and a lot uh, of you know, thousands of acres and hectares devoted to cork plantations to try to make uh, the Soviet Union uh, self sufficient in this same vital material. So uh, I came across another yeah CIA report about Soviet bloc countries growing cork. And uh, and what it meant to uh, global security. 
you're right it could be a series (laughs) well i guess um if you're asking people what kind of bellwether you would see cork for they would suggest sort of uh fizzy drinks or carbonated drinks and how much people are drinking of those (laughs) um you'll be unlikely to say it shows uh how many engine units seals or, or or something like that were being produced um it's just not a barometer that one would normally think of uh, I guess in the defense defense sphere. <laughs> David, thank you, thank you for joining me. Thank you for your time and suggesting the topic. Loyal listener, if we've whetted your appetite to learn more about cork, the book to get is Cork Wars by David A. Taylor. It really is a fascinating subject. I'll put a link for the book on the website. So that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can find me on Facebook. Why not give me a like or a follow? It's always nice to get your comments. I'm Angus Wallace and thanks for listening.